0: Good to see everybody here today. Uh, So um, just to let you know, I'll be talking to the people in the back. The the clickers aren't working as well today. So um, unless one of you has a clicker, if you start clicking during the sermon, don't do that. That would be bad. (coughs) But uh, (coughs) the first, (coughs) excuse me, we've been going through Mark 13 (coughs) recently, and it's all prophecy. And if you remember, the very first week, (coughs) I titled that message, Hope on a Hillside. Then last week's message was entitled Hope in Tribulation. If you haven't caught those two sermons, they are foundational for the one I'm preaching today. Now, you can hear today's and be able to get it, but to really understand all of what's going on, what we call this Olivet Discourse, this whole chapter of prophecy by Jesus about his return and the kingdom of heaven, you really should catch those first two. But I've entitled this message, you can go forward, is Already uh, Hope Now. So, the first question I have to answer for you is, why should you bother to listen to another boring sermon on prophecy? Especially when you probably already decided that prophecy is confusing anyway, and it's just going to confuse you even more. As a matter of fact, prophecy, particularly prophecy in Mark 13, is so confusing. There are so many varying opinions from Bible experts. I mean... If they can't figure it out, why do you think that we could? <clears throat> but just imagine with me, dream with me, if you will. Suddenly, <clears throat> you had this foundational working of knowledge of Bible prophecy that started to undo the knot. Not that you had full knowledge, but you had a working foundation that helped you start to understand that you don't have full knowledge, but you could begin to say, yes, I have a clear, reliable Process of thought that allows me to read prophecy in scripture and begin to figure it out. What if reading prophecy in the Bible turned into a fully encouraging exercise? Not an intimidating one or a challenging one. So, how would you do that? How would you start it? Well, you start with what is absolutely totally clear as your foundation. And then you worry about the confusing parts later. Which brings us to today's passage: The most difficult, without question, the most difficult to understand in what is called the Olivet discourse in Mark 13. And one of the dangers we have in reading Scripture, as you guys know, <coughs> we come to it with preconceived notions. Preconceived assumptions that shade us from what the truth of the scripture is really saying. This happens when we read these passages on prophecy in a vacuum, out of context, without considering the fullness of scripture. For example, most believe that today's passage is a prophecy of that glorious return of Jesus that we all are waiting for. That future second coming. Excuse me, But if it is a passage all about the future second coming, then it begins to have no relevance at all for those poor first century Christians. And that can't be because we understand Jesus has established a timeline. If it's all about that second coming, his undeniable, undisputable timeline that he laid out for us in the last two weeks we've looked at it, this becomes the number one place for people who criticize Jesus to attack his credibility. So with that in mind, it's important that we learn to understand. Let's go forward. This is the first uh, part of the passage. But in those days, after that tribulation, that tribulation, remember that, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Well, that's good enough, right? Let's just close in prayer. Everybody understands what he means by that. Just kidding. We'll keep going. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Go forward. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the first thing we're going to look at is the spiritual component. You can go forward. I want to talk about the end of the age. See, what makes a prophecy great, it's not just predicting that something's going to happen. You can do that all day, and someday you might probably be right. But what really makes it great is when you predict when. And all this, Jesus said, has to happen before the last apostle dies. And when Jesus declared that their generation would see the transition from Israel to the church, it was a definitive timeline. He did not give any, well, it could be, you know, stopping here, then a thousand years later. No, he says, before all of you are dead, this will happen. So the first thing I want you to look at is dark skies. Let's look at that. So Jesus makes this stunning prediction first, right? We've talked about it the last two weeks, about this war between Rome and Israel and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and all the tribulation that tribulation would bring, the carnage. He gives dire warnings about national carnage and specific instructions about how Christians would avoid all that carnage. And we see how multiple, reliable, historic sources inside and outside the church have verified everything that Jesus said, and we talked about it last week. All of it played out just like he said it would, on the timeline with the exact details. And then he comes and he adds, after all that incredible, stunning prediction that should be one of the most greatest encouragements that your faith is real, that Jesus is real, this undeniable historical fact that he predicted 37 years before it took place. He adds these ominous signs in heaven in today's passage. The dark moon and the dark sun and the stars falling. Real sky is falling, apocalyptic language. We will dive into the significance of that in our historical section later. But it's quite ominous and intimidating, right, to read about it? Then the next thing I want you to see is among the clouds with angels. Go to the next one. With angels, with the clouds. So we have this image that he paints of the Son of Man returning with clouds. It seems like a climactic end to a battle scene, right? This is actually in Daniel. Go to the next thing. I want to read this. uh, Well, I'll read the, the Daniel verse later. I want to talk about this idea of angels, I've got some slides out of order, so I'll just just bear with me for just a moment. Go back. Okay, great. Uh, Yeah, right there. So in Daniel it says, I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came in the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given power and glory and a kingdom that all nations and all languages would serve him. His dominion would be an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So he talks about this idea of angels among the clouds. And back to the fig tree. He even talks about this fig tree. He says, You'll know that all this is about to take place. The fig tree, he says, will have tender roots and leaves. Do you know that tree was one of the very few trees in that region that lost its leaves in winter in Israel? Most of them all keep their leaves. It's a kind of a warm climate. And it was notoriously different from all others. And when the leaves of the fig tree would return, you would know that spring has arrived, winter is done, the rainy season has come, and now things will spring to life. He is teaching that if you take the lesson from the fig tree, a new beginning, a new season is coming, a new age of life, a spiritual spring after centuries of dark skies. And then he talks about this generation. Go to the, the next slide. Let's just say this generation. Mm. Yeah, right there. Remember the question Jesus is answering. He says, when all this is going to happen, Jesus, what is, that's the question the disciples were asking. And he gives this definitive timeline. He says, what many generations have been hoping for, this new kingdom of heaven, it's all going to pa- come to pass in your generation. Many of them would witness this, what I would call an inauguration of this new kingdom of heaven and all the healing it brings to earth. So let's go to the historical section. I want to talk about a new spiritual order. There are three ways that Scripture is written, just so you know. There is this literal historical narrative, right, where we say this happened, this happened, this happened. Then there's figurative or metaphoric language where there's symbols that are used. And then Scripture is also written in a combination of both. Mark 13 is a combination of historical narrative and prophetic metaphorical narrative imagery. The question becomes, when we're reading scripture, right, if we're reading about prophecy, how do we know which is which, and when is when, and how do we re- interpret them? Here's the great thing, and I'm going to give you this foundational structure, right? This is kind of like a uh, seminary kind of class, if you'll bear with me just a moment. Scripture is full, just full of repeated metaphoric patterns and phrases, and it's crucial that we identify them when these metaphoric patterns appear. And once we identify these patterns, we can then determine how they have been used and find the similarities, and that's what we're going to do here. So we see these heavenly signs. Look at this. So many, did you know this? If you look back in Scripture, dark skies, the moon, the sun, the falling stars, many Old Testament prophets used this cataclysmic, heavenly, dark language hyperbole to mark political upheaval. The fall of great kingdoms. And we do it constantly. I'm trying to figure out what would be a good way to explain to you how that maybe worked. I've got it. This just came to me right now. I didn't plan this ahead of time. Go to the next slide. I didn't plan this ahead of time. It's like last week when the Bucks beat the Packers. The sky fell in Green Bay. The sun was darkened. The moon was darkened. The stars fell. It was devastating. It was earth-shaking what happened in Green Bay, Wisconsin last Sunday. You see, we use that kind of language all the time, right? To describe a cataclysm, We don't really mean the earth shook. We just mean the Packers got their butt kicked. That's all we really mean. Okay, I'm sorry, enough of that. (laughs) But that's exactly what happens in Scripture. There is repeated use of these images of cosmic upheaval to describe God's judgment and the demise of other nations and kings. And all the examples, get this now, every time they used these pictures of the sky being dark, it was always an example of massive political or governmental upheaval and transition. Isn't that fascinating? Every time. In Isaiah chapter 13, 9 and 10, he talks about the destruction of Babylon and Tyre, and it's a figurative, identical language to Mark 13. In Isaiah 34, he talks about the desolation of Basra and Edom. It says, melted mountains, swords falling from heaven, the sky is dark, the sun falls, all that stuff. It's the same language as in Mark 13. When an empire would be conquered, it's this massive change in the world at that time. A new world order for everybody alive in that regime. It would literally feel like, for many people, the end of their world. There's going to be new demands, a new way of life, New priorities, new dangers, and new peril. And those in power before the fall would suffer greatly under a new empire, a new regime. And it is hyperbolic language of judgment. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's using very familiar, that these Jews would understand, familiar prophetic metaphors. The sky will be darkened. The stars fall. The sun won't shine. The moon won't shine. As good Jews, they would know. We've heard this before in Isaiah, when Isaiah prophesied the fall of kingdoms. That's what he's doing here. He's using familiar prophetic metaphors to call attention to a major world change in world order that is about to take place. And then he talks about the Son of Man with clouds. This is the most controversial, church, the most controversial part of this passage. The Son of Man coming, and I put, in the clouds. Let's tackle that like we did the metaphors of dark skies, looking for similar metaphoric patterns in Scripture, shall we? By the way, most translations say he comes in the clouds, but it's actually not in the clouds. The actual correct translation is with clouds. Remember last week I told you about how the translators let you down when they translated the word tribulation one time when it actually occurs 33 times in the New Testament? They let you down here too. It's with clouds, not in the clouds. God with clouds is what it says. Now let's look for metaphoric patterns in the Scripture. Did you know that God's presence always came with clouds throughout the whole New Te- Old Testament? I didn't put these up there. I'm just going to list these references for you. You can look at them later if you want. In Exodus 13, 21 and 22, God comes with clouds. In Exodus 24, 16 to 18, he comes with clouds. He fills the temple with clouds. Exodus 40, 38, the cloud of God's glory. Numbers 10, 11 through 36, the clouds of God. He, he was with the, the children of Israel during the day with a cloud, a pillar, and fire by night. God has always manifested His presence in the form of a cloud. So when Jesus says He comes with clouds, all you see in this metaphoric pattern throughout Scripture is God's presence is denoted by clouds. It's what the Hebrews called Shekinah. Now that word is not in the Scriptures, but it means, Shekinah means cloud of glory. The presence of God dwelling on the earth That's what filled the tabernacle and the temple before it became desolate and abominated. Remember? That was the dwelling place of God. It was God's presence where anything impure or imperfect is purified. That's what Jesus is saying would happen soon. That his presence would fill the whole earth, not just a temple. And you know how we know that? Look at the next one. He says, angels and four winds. Just so you understand what he's saying here, he says, Jesus comes with the clouds, and he says he will send angels to gather all the elect, which is, by the way, his church, from the four winds of the earth. What? Four winds of the earth? Now, this was supposed to be early. I don't know if it's up there. Put it up there, uh, the next slide. Yes, great. Angelos, that's the Greek word for angel. I know what you're thinking. The guys with the wings. That's actually not what he's talking about here. He's talking about messengers sent by God. The implication is a preacher or a proclaimer. It's messengers spreading the good news of His presence, His Shekinah glory, His gospel to all the world. The next word I want you to look at the next screen. Uh, this word here, episonago. to gather together those that are already assembled to gather new people to those already assembled. It always means His church. Here's what He's doing. Jesus is predicting the end of a Jewish age, a Jewish empire, a Jewish reign when it comes to spiritual things, Israel's temple as the conduit for the blessings of Jehovah, and His Shekinah glory will now extend to the whole earth. His kingdom will advance, and it spreads throughout, and the four winds It's a beautiful metaphor, isn't it? What happens when you apply wind to smoke or clouds? They spread. And he says he will come with clouds and messengers will take the gospel to the four winds. In other words, he's saying wind will spread the cloud of his glory to every part of the earth. Isn't that beautiful? Four winds spreading the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud, the cloud that he has come with. And in the parallel passage in Luke, we get an even better important clue that what Jesus is talking about is the end of what we call the time of the Jews to the time of the Gentiles. Luke chapter 21, verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of Gentiles are fulfilled. It is the same passage, the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus actually uses the word times of the Gentiles. That's what is beginning, that new world order where the skies are darkened and the moon is dark and the the sun is dark and the stars fall. He comes with the clouds. It's a big transition. This seems to be, knowing what we know about Scripture and how to read it, the absolute best way to interpret Mark chapter 13, 24 to 26. It's the end of the temple age, the end of that spiritual empire, if you will, and the beginning of the church. The times of the Gentiles in which the church becomes the messenger spreading the gospel to all the earth. Note, I want you to understand something. This isn't what some people call replacement theology, where the church has replaced Israel. No, it is not a replacement of Israel. It is, in fact, as Paul explains and Jesus explains, it is an expansion of Israel. It's the grafting in of the Gentiles and the gathering of the elect, the church from all the earth. It's called fulfillment theology. Jesus declares that those disciples that generation will witness this stunning beautiful inauguration of a new spiritual kingdom of heaven he declares the signs of this inauguration of the kingdom of heaven its invasion into the dark clouds of this world it is in fact a prophecy of the great commission go ye therefore into all the world baptizing them in the name of the father and the son The Holy Spirit, teaching you to observe all that I have told you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the what age? What age? The age of the Gentiles. Where the church and Israel have combined to become a holy priesthood. The people of God. That's a lot of theology right there, isn't it? You guys just earned a degree, if you were listening. Let's go to the personal section. I want to talk about kingdom power now. This was the sermon preview for this week. The church's greatest passion, hope, and aspiration should be the, kingdom, the expansion of the kingdom of heaven now, not just its glory when Jesus returns. So here's the thing. Jesus always taught like this, right? Mixing parables and metaphors, with literal historic language and definitive statements and o- Old Testament poetic prophetic language. And what he does here in Mark 13, it's just brilliant teaching. He has neatly, in just a few verses, bundled all of church history together. It's the kingdom of heaven that he's been teaching this whole time in his public ministry, is it not? It's why all of Jesus' teachings just seem like they're timeless. Touching every human experience, past, present, in future, it's one of another, another great miracle of our Jesus. He never loses his relevance. How does he do that? So let's talk about not yet. As Christians, we do yearn for that return of Jesus. Don't get me wrong. We long for that day that we're all caught up together with Jesus forever. That ultimate culmination of human history, the end of the age of the Gentiles, and the completion of the advance of the kingdom of heaven. We long for that day, that moment. When Jesus returns, and all disease, all war, all hunger, all pain, all death, and all suffering cease, and it will be a glorious moment. And we look to that, and we're hoping for that, and we desire that, and it motivates us. That moment that our faith receives its final, not its first, but its final and ultimate confirmation that we were right to believe in our Jesus. But guess what, church? Look around. It hasn't happened yet. See, today's passage isn't about the second coming. It's something different. Something perfectly relevant for us this moment. Glory being revealed. Let me read this verse to you, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Go to the next slide there. I'll just go for verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, are being currently transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He's describing a process. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, that same Spirit who came in the clouds. It's the coming of Shekinah glory into our lives, this verse is explaining and spreading the benefits of our redemption throughout the entire world. The same cloud of glory that filled the temple is now filling and enveloping His people. We are surrounded at this very moment and empowered by that presence of God that Jesus declared would come in the clouds before their generation was passed. It is the Holy Spirit The presence of God introduced to the entire world, and at that point, it began the process of making the world whole again as we are transitioned from glory to glory. A process marked by healing the earth, the ultimate end of death, disease, hunger, poverty, injustice, and violence. The end result, all of those will be complete. But now I want you to see something beautiful. Look at this silly, scoffed-at movement called Christianity. Look at everything it, without the help of government, has accomplished in just 2,000 years. Yes, life on earth is still hard. But could you imagine how bad the earth would be if there had never been a church? No kingdom of heaven? Just think about that for a moment. Yes, some will say, oh, yeah, but the church had the Crusades. Or, oh, there's a lot of hypocrisy in the church. Or look at the Vatican, or whatever your complaint might be, right, if you want to try to blast the church. No doubt the church is filled with flawed people just like us. No doubt that there has been times in this 2,000-year process of the expansion of God's kingdom to all the earth, there is no doubt that evil has successfully infiltrated its ranks. What would you do if you had an enemy? Wouldn't you want to infiltrate their ranks? Of course evil has infiltrated us and caused discord and failure and moral failure and strife. Yet somehow, guys, somehow with all of that, something that would have killed everything any other movement, the kingdom is still advancing. Even with all those failures, all those things thrown in our way, look at the church of Jesus. Look at what it has accomplished. Far more than any other kingdom of man could that have all ended. I studied church history for a really long time in seminary, for three years. Years, two semesters a year for three six semesters, a lot of reading, which you guys know I just adore. But I tell you, it was fascinating. I studied all the good and all the bad. And I can tell you, when you measure the good the church has done and the bad that has been caused when evil has infiltrated it, it's not even close. The far greater legacy, objectively speaking, of the kingdom of heaven is in fact healing. Feeding the hungry, love, peace, helping the suffering, helping the poor. The kingdom with these concepts and the gospel of redemption has been advancing us, taking us from one degree of glory to another as was laid out in Corinthians by Paul. It's been doing it now uninterrupted for 2,000 years. Which brings me to my last point today, right now. Let's read this verse from Isaiah chapter 14, verse 17. Bring that up. The next verse. There we go. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. You shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Well, now that I've given you a lot of information, that verse in Isaiah takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? So this whole prophecy in Mark 13, it's all happened. And its consequences echo even this moment today, right now as I preach. From the preservation, the miraculous warning and preservation, don't flee to Jerusalem like they all do, get out, from the miraculous preservation of the first century church in that great tribulation and the ensuing explosion of the movement after that throughout the world, consider all that we've learned. This passage now takes on A whole new source, this prophetic passage of motivation and encouragement and affirmation. It's no longer, now that you understand the timeline, this passage about the dark skies and all that stuff and the angels and Jesus and the clouds, it is no longer intimidating. It is no longer confusing. It's not mysterious or troubling or maybe, as some would try to say, some embarrassing weak spot for the credibility of our Lord Jesus. No, it is quite the opposite. We no longer see this passage as a promise yet to be fulfilled. Yes, there is a second coming, but that's not what this passage was promising. We don't see today's passage as a promise yet to be fulfilled, but a promise that has been wholly fulfilled and continuing to play out this moment today. We have been gathered, us if you're a child of God in here and you know Jesus, you have been gathered by the messengers sent to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Those four winds. And now we are part of that messenger crew. Gathering the elect all along the way as the kingdom advances. It is now our time in the fulfillment of this prophecy. Right now. Our time To enjoy the power and the presence of Jesus who came with clouds. To pierce the world's dark skies. We are part of that new age. The new nation gathered from all the earth, filled each one of us. We are what? The temple of the Holy Spirit? We are filled with that Shekinah glory. His kingdom is spreading. It's advancing everywhere. In every nation, every country, every language, every tongue. It's not shrinking. It's not pulling back. The kingdom is getting stronger, bigger, more expansive. It doesn't matter who wins an election, who loses an election, who's running China, who's running South America. It doesn't matter. Our kingdom keeps going. And all the powers of this world, no matter what they do, even if As has happened a couple of times in history, they tried to kill us all. They will not be able to squash it, because no weapon formed against us will prosper. That's what Isaiah meant. There is no earthly kingdom that can derail the expansion. The steamroller, if you will, that is the kingdom of heaven. Aren't you glad, church, that this stuff in Mark 13 has already happened and we aren't waiting for it anymore? Doesn't that change how you read Mark 13? Like, wow, this is us. Aren't you glad? Then start living like it. Jesus, we're so thankful For the prophecies you gave us on the Mount of Olives. We're so thankful that you were right, that you were proven correct. And as we look around with the undeniable evidence of your ever advancing kingdom that no weapon can prosper against, we're so thankful that we are not of this world. We are part of a heavenly spiritual kingdom, a new age where you gather people from all parts of the earth, from the north, the south, the east, and the west. You make us part of the elect, and then we become part of the messengers. Lord, I pray that you would help us to start recognizing as bad and as discouraging as the things in this world might be, we are beyond it. And our movement will survive it. And help us at this very moment to be those who start living like it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope you guys were able to track with all that. I know it's a lot. We have one more message on prophecy next week in Mark 13, and then we'll stop predicting the past, (laughs) if you will. But we love you so much. We thank you so much for those watching from home. Have a great week.